Hey everyone, Kayla Donovan here with Transformation Group Business Advisory, bringing to you our first ever podcast where we will be discussing all the things you must know if you're thinking about selling your med spa, healthcare practice, or veterinary hospital. So today we will be joined by Justin Weaver, partner at Oberman Law Firm, to discuss the most common mistakes made by sellers. Justin comes with years of experience and expertise with a focus on assisting dental and veterinary professionals with the sale and acquisition of practices, structuring of complex partnerships, employment agreements, and other operational matters. He has represented hundreds of dentists and veterinarians, as well as corporate-owned enterprises with deals ranging from single operatory dental practices and veterinary clinics to the sale of multi-location practices. Justin, I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast today, and I'm super excited to jump into today's topic. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what made you want to work specifically with dentists and veterinarians? Yeah, th- thanks for having me, Kayla. It's, uh, it's an honor to be number one on the Kayla Donovan podcast. <laughs> uh, so, you know, believe it or not, I didn't go to, to law school uh, with the intent of representing dentists or veterinarians or being kind of in this, this space. Uh, they don't, they don't, I was speaking to a veterinarian yesterday and she said, they, they probably don't have a, a class in law school about representing veterinarians. And I said, that's, that's definitely the case. There's, there's no class about representing uh, folks in the vet med space. Uh, but when I, when I, Exited, in fact, when I was still in law school, I started working for a firm that uh, focused heavily on the representation of dentists. And so I kind of got my feet wet uh, straight out of law school, representing folks in, in that space. Uh, over the years, I you know, expanded into the, the vet med space and some other similar uh, medical professions. Uh, and to the point now where I exclusively represent veterinarians, dentists, and a few other you know, similarly situated medical professionals with the, the, you know, I always hesitate to put any type of percentage or number to it, but the, the vast majority of my clients today are, are in the vet med space and uh, it's just kind of grown organically to this point. Um, but I've, I've found that they're, they're generally great folks to work with. And so I'm uh, happy to be doing what I'm doing. Excellent. Well, let's jump right in then. So I think a good place to start here, Justin, is to talk a little bit about what's involved with picking the right team to start off your process and get you through the the wonderful journey of selling your practice. So in your opinion, what are some of the most common mistakes and mistakes and then also things to consider when picking you're the team that's going to lead you through this entire journey. So that's, you know, your broker, your advisor, your attorney, um, you know, all these important players who are really going to set the tone for how smooth and just how easy this process is going to be. Um, You know, in your opinion, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you think are some important things to consider. Um, I do think it's probably one of the most common mistakes to start out with. So, you know, I'd love to start there and, you know, just get the ball rolling and we'll talk a little bit about the the team involved if you want to go ahead on that. Yeah, for sure. And from that that introduction, Kayla, it sounds like you see the the same mistake that I see on a regular basis with a lot of sellers, which is... uh, Unfortunately, one of the biggest mistakes that we do see is, is sellers who just fail to to engage or hire the, the right team uh, of advisors in connection with a, a sale or a transaction. And 
and just to be clear, when we say team, we're, we're not talking about the doctors or the assistants or the techs or the, the practice managers in the, in the hospital. Uh, of course, those folks are, are critical to, to maximizing the, the valuation of the, the hospital. And, and we can talk about this further. In some cases, they, they can even become critical into, in connection with whether or not you're able to sell the hospital. Um, but really, I think when I think of, of team and hiring a team in connection with the transaction, we're talking about folks like accountants, attorneys, uh, brokers, financial advisors, in, in some cases, consultants, you know, fo folks who are going to assist a, a seller from the time that they decide or start thinking about selling the hospital uh, until in many cases, well after they've actually sold the hospital and they've kind of wrapped up everything they, they need to wrap up in connection with that sale. Um, and unfortunately in my profession, I think in yours as well, Kayla, we, we spend a lot of time thinking and, and uh, about mistakes that sellers make because it's kind of our job to, uh, help our clients avoid those mistakes. And so in my firm, we're always kind of chatting about things that we see that, uh, sellers have done wrong, how we can help our clients uh, avoid those things. And this is one of the, the biggest mistakes that we see. And I, uh, I guess let me acknowledge that it's obviously uh, inherently self-promotional for a veterinary-focused attorney and a veterinary-focused uh, broker to sit here and tell folks that the biggest mistake they can make is, is not hiring people like us. And so I, I get that. Uh, but if you put that aside and, and think about it objectively, th the reason that it becomes such a big mistake is that these advisors like ourselves, uh, as I said, our goal is to prevent mistakes. And so if, if this was the only thing, you only listened to the first five minutes of this podcast, and this is the only piece of advice you took, you're going to hopefully hire a team of advisors that are going to help you avoid all the other mistakes that we could, could talk about for hours uh, that, that sellers will make. And so by, by simply hiring the right team, uh, you don't have to worry about any other mistakes because that, that team should really guide you and, and, and point out those things as you go to make sure that, that you don't even have to consider them until your, your team points them out to you. Right, right. And I know, and again, I think, you know, both of, I, both of us play a very important role in this whole process, but, you know, I, I have to say, uh, and, and a little bit to, to give you a little plug here, but also it's, it's very much the truth, you know, from being on both sides from, and I've seen deals go horribly wrong with the wrong attorney. So um, again, you know, I think you do a really great job of that and your experience is, is just, is, is huge. And I tell all my clients, you know, if, if you're going to pick somebody, I bet if the one thing out of this whole conversation that you take away, please, please, please hire an attorney who has experience doing these deals. Um, because I, I just think it, it can truly make or break the process. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely the case. And I, I, I obviously appreciate the plug for attorneys, but I'll, I'll say it goes across the board for, for all these advisors we've spoken about. Um, and to just kind of piggyback on, on your point, most of our clients have never been through any legal transaction of, of this type when they come to us. And so, you know, some have, some have, have hired advisors to help them purchase the hospital initially. Uh, that may have been decades ago in some cases. Uh, you know, folks have, have purchased real estate and have gone through processes like that. But 
for, for many of our clients, this is going to be by far the biggest legal transaction uh, or, or transaction of any nature that they're going to have any part of. And so you can't really you can't really make up for it the next time in many circumstances, <laughs> right? You, you get one shot at selling this hospital. You know, obviously there there are unique situations where that's not the case, but um, it, it's critically important for these folks. And and, and I would say, you know, if if somebody was going through you know, bankruptcy, I, I would not be the attorney for that person to hire. They would be <laughs> very much uh, underrepresented if they hired me to represent them in their bankruptcy case. That would be a huge mistake. Uh, or if, you know, somebody hired a, uh, a real estate broker to try to sell their, their hospital. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. the same thing. Th- those folks aren't familiar with what's customary in this type of transaction, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have experience to know what they should and should not ask for. Um, and frankly, sometimes what you shouldn't ask for is, is just as important as, as what you should. Um, and, and so, you know, I guess just to, to, to kind of button that piece up, I think it's, it's critically important to hire someone who has experience for, for all of these advisors in, in this type of transaction. Uh, it's, you don't want to be hiring someone who's going to have to do research to figure out what they need to advise you. You don't want to hire someone who's never done a transaction of this type before. Uh, there are enough folks out there who are experienced enough in, in all of these different advising roles, uh, that, that you should really get someone who, who knows what they're doing, I think is, is some pretty simple advice for folks who are, who are looking uh, for, for who they should hire to represent them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I guess aside from, um, you know, just aside from experience, you know, what are some other important things that you would recommend someone to look for, you know, when choosing their right team, just as like a broad, you know, from the attorney to broker, just some other things that they should, you know, different questions that they should ask or different things that they could, should consider when they're hiring and they're putting their team together. Right. Yeah. I think one of the most important things is just to ensure that you, you understand who that person is, is representing, right? Who, whose interests do they have in mind? Um, if you are a seller of a hospital uh, and the buyer says, "Hey, I've got, you know, why don't why don't you just use this this attorney that I'm using, and and we can have one attorney kind of handle this whole deal for us, and we'll save some money that way." You know, that's generally not going to be a good idea, right? It, it's hard to though the interest there, no matter how cordial the transaction is going to be, and how much you get along, it could be your best friend you're you're buying selling a hospital to or buying a hospital from. Your, your interests are inherently opposed in, in some way, right? For you to get more money, it means the other person has to pay more money. And so mm-hmm. it's impossible in that circumstance for somebody to kind of represent both sides. Um, you have to also consider what the, the person's interests are in, in the deal, right? If I solely represented or if I, if I try to represent both sides of the deal – and you have both agreed that you're going to pay me if I get this deal done for you. The only thing I'm going to care about is getting that deal done for you, or at least at, at some inherent level. Um, the right. Whereas if you have someone that represents you, uh, 
they've got ethical obligations to you. They have to make sure they represent your interests in, in many cases. Uh, and they're, they've got one person who's kind of telling them what they need to do. And so right. for, whenever I need to do something and I have an attorney who's representing the other side, who's contacting me and saying, we need to do X, Y, and Z. The, the only thing I do at that point is go to my client and say, are you comfortable doing X, Y, and Z and, and talk through why or why not you shouldn't, shouldn't do whatever is being requested. And I don't take into consideration anybody else's opinion or anybody else's interests. You know, we're, we're solely focused on representing that client. And I think that that's critically important um, to, to, to making sure that the person you're hiring has your, your interests in, in mind. Um, to go along with that, I guess it's, it's slightly different, but I think it's something that, that's very much overlooked. Uh, once you have an experienced advisor, someone who knows what they're doing, someone who has your interests in mind, is making sure that you, you, you like this person, right? To, to put it at a very basic level, right? <laughs> uh, whenever you need to trust them, you need to they don't have to be your best buddy, uh, but, but you need to enjoy working with them at some level, or at least be able to tolerate working with them. Uh, you're going to spend a lot of time with these advisors and it may only be over a few month period uh, as you're trying to sell your hospital or working through the process. But you know, when I represent a seller, oftentimes I'm speaking to them multiple times a week and, you know, we may end up having 25 hours of, of conversation over the course of the transaction or whatever the, the time period is, we're going to spend a lot of time together. And if you feel that you don't feel comfortable speaking with your advisor for whatever reason, you feel that they're speaking down to you, you feel that like they're not explaining enough to you, they're making assumptions that you know things you don't, uh, you just generally don't like dealing with that person. Uh, that That's a red flag simply because it's going to potentially inhibit your, your ability to get the deal done and to, to kind of tolerate the process. So not one that you'll see on a, a lot of presentations about advisors that, uh, you know, determining who you should hire. But to me, I, I, I think it's a pretty important piece to, to make sure that you enjoy working with, with the person that you're going to work with for, for several months. Oh yeah. Cause you're talking to them a lot to your point. So sure. it, it, that's definitely you, you got to feel comfortable with them. You got to make sure that there's an open line of communication because I think, you know, another mistake that I think could easily be made is there's, is not enough communication, right? So, you know, if, if the buyer, if the seller, excuse me, seller doesn't trust their advisor and they're doing things without talking to them about it first and just making choices and, you know, going around them and not, not really consulting with them or letting them know. I'm not saying that they, the advisor needs to be in control of everything, but I do think that you guys, you know, we're a team and we're in this together. And I think it's really important that you run everything. You have an open line of communication and run everything by that advisor, just to make sure that you're all on the same page. Cause it's just, it's going to be better for everybody and just make for a much smoother process. So I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, so why don't we, we'll talk a little bit about, so I think, you know, is there anything else that you, that you think is important to keep in mind when hiring the right team? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's that's not a an exhaustive exhaustive list that we just went through. Um, you know, we, t- we we touched on it briefly when when talking about kind of what a, a good advisor does, but uh, I think you know, knowing for, for an advisor to, to the having the experience in the space will allow an advisor to know what's customary. And again, getting back to that issue about what you should and should not act for. Um, that advisor, you know, the, the main thing that comes to mind when people think about what an advisor should do for them is negotiate the deal and get them the best possible terms they can get, whether that's in a legal document, whether that's the broker negotiating the purchase price, the CPA, you know, doing ad backs to, to help, uh, you know, make the, the practice look as attractive as possible. That, that's what everybody thinks of, right? What an advisor should do. And that's a huge piece of what your advisor should do. They should be negotiating and getting you the, the, the best deal that you can get. Um, you know, equally as, as important, I think, is for that advisor to be able to keep you in line and tell you, uh, make sure you understand the process uh, and make sure you understand whether a request from the other side is is normal or whether that should raise a red flag, right? We have a lot of clients, again, who they've just never been through this process and it's totally understandable. Uh, And so the other side will ask for something and they'll say, why why do they possibly care about about this piece of information they've asked for, whatever it may be? Uh, You know, they may want to delve into certain rebates that the hospital has received over the years. They may ask questions about um, certain employees and their background and disciplinary actions. And, and so sellers, again, understandably, can, can start to get a little concerned whenever these questions are being asked or uh, whenever certain things are in a document that they, they wouldn't expect to be in a document. And so having an advisor who can say, well, you know what, that's actually very customary. You don't have to worry about that. You know, let's make sure it's it's accurate. Let's give them uh, what they've asked for. We can, I can certainly let you know if there's any issues. Uh, but I always tell my clients, and I think most advisors will tell their clients, look, I'm going to tell you if something comes up that is out of the ordinary. And so you don't have to worry about that. Again, the benefit of having good advisors. If, if the other side asks for something that to me is not customary or there, there's some reason to be alarmed, again, the first person I'm going to call is the client. And so all of that just ties in to the, the benefit of, of having folks who have experience and, and have gone through this process many times. Um, and, you know, just as one, one last related item to that is it, all of those things also allow you to, to ensure kind of a smooth process from start to finish. And so, um, some of the been on through throughout the uh, a transaction result from a client or a, a, an opposing party having counsel or having another advisor who's driving the process in a way that just doesn't really make sense. And so they're asking for things that don't make sense. Uh, or they are, you know, providing documents that, that just aren't necessary or aren't appropriate. And so those types of transactions can get off the rails pretty quickly. Whereas if you have advisors who know what they're doing, they're going to make sure you understand what a lender on the other side is going to request 
or what uh, an attorney might request. It just kind of keeps things running smoothly and, and ensuring that you're not going to have any delays in the process uh, and that you're not going to do anything that potentially jeopardizes the, the deal itself. Absolutely, because also avoiding time kill time kills all deals is what I like to say. So avoiding any delays, I think, is is going to be a really important piece too. So um, it, again, kind of back to the communication and just being responsive and doing what you're supposed to do in a timely manner and being able to act fast, I think, and accurately is going to be really important too. So. Um, Totally agree with you on that as well. I think that's a really important piece that a lot of people don't think about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's uh, one of the, one of the biggest deal killers is is just having you know. I, unfortunately, I've I've come into quite a few deals where kind of been brought in to try to you know quote unquote save the deal uh, after after advisors have kind of run it off the roads a little bit, and the client says, "Well, I don't think this is how how things should go." Uh, those are my Justin's here to save the day. Uh, my, my, my least favorite deals, by the way. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, it's th those, thankfully, because we generally are able to encourage our clients to get good advisors all, all around, uh, it, it's very rare that we see something like that happen unless we're brought in after the fact. But the number of times that we've been brought in after the fact uh, or kind of halfway through a transaction are indicative, indicative that that's, that's one of the ways that, uh, you know, a deal can, can really go sideways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Also crazy, right? All these things that can go wrong. And I, and I don't think people really usually think about that, but um it's rarely there's there's always something to that degree and it's our job to avoid those things but i feel like there's always there's always something for sure for sure <laughs> um well let's talk a little bit about um because just how important it is to make sure that you're prepared in advance for a sale because i think obviously preparation is key and i think we come into play at that point as well but um, you know, why don't you talk to us a little bit more about what that looks like from your side? And, you know, I think failing to prepare in advance for a sale is, is a very common mistake that a lot of people make. So I'd love to get your take on, on that subject as well. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I would say you, you've hit two, two of the biggest, uh, mistakes that, that we see sellers make, uh, as kind of a general categories right off the top here, uh, outside of failing to hire the right team, you know, f failing to prepare is, is probably the other biggest mistake that we see sellers make. Um, and, you know, it, it comes in the form, a lot of clients will come to us uh, or will hire, Kayla, I'm sure you can speak to this better than I, I can, but we'll hire a broker, hire another advisor, and they want to complete the sale absolutely as soon as possible. Uh, you know, they, they want to complete it today if possible, and they, they are ready to retire in many cases, and, and they've kind of got one foot out the door already. Um, that can be dangerous in a few ways. Uh, first of all, if you are not taking every step you can to, to plan for a, a sale of your hospital, 
you're likely failing to maximize the, the value and the profitability of, of your hospital itself, right? If you, uh, you know, we, we kind of the worst case scenario, we have clients who have come to us and, uh, you know, have, have already taken their foot off the gas a bit, right? They've already started to reduce the hours of the hospital or they've, uh, you know, they've decided that, well, one of our associates left, I'm not going to replace them. I'm, I'm going to allow the, the future buyer to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that headache. Uh, and by, you know, failing to kind of continue to operate the hospital in the ordinary course, they're not realizing that in a few months or in a year when they're, when they go to sell, any buyer is going to look at how the hospital has been doing immediately prior to that sale. And they're going to base the, the, the amount that they're willing to offer, the amount they're willing to pay for the hospital based on, of course, they're going to look at tax returns for, for the last several years. But if they're seeing a decline in the revenues of the hospital or a departing doctor or a change in the services that have been being offered immediately prior to the sale, that's going to be a huge red flag for a buyer and it's going to reduce the the amount they're willing to pay. And so a seller who is able and willing to kind of plan a year, two years in advance and, and speak to their advisors and take steps to, to avoid all of those mistakes and actually take actions to increase and maximize the valuation of the hospital is always going to find themselves in, in a better position whenever they're actually, whenever they actually get to the, the point of sale. The other thing that I think mo a lot of sellers overlook is the expectation from the buyer after the sale. And mm -hmm. so if you wait until you're ready to retire at, and you want to retire immediately when you unload your hospital to a buyer, that's going to significantly limit the number of potential buyers that are available for you. And so, you know, in, in many cases, it's going to, if not entirely eliminate, very close to entirely eliminate the, the potential uh, corporate backed buyers, right? They're, they don't have a stable of doctors that they're going to bring in and replace you. They would expect for you to work uh, for a period of time after the sale in, in many cases. Uh, even when you're selling to another doctor, you know, that doctor is, even if they're willing to come in and take over all of your production is likely going to want you to stick around for some period of time to help transition the hospital. And so if you're going to say, I need to sell and I need to retire because you haven't planned appropriately, you're going to limit yourself and it's going to become very difficult to find a buyer. And if, when you do find a buyer, you're likely going to be taking a, a significant haircut on the purchase price that you're receiving. Yeah. Nope. I think that's, that's a, I tell my clients that all the time. And I think in this new environment where, especially on the corporate side, these, these buyers are being much, much pickier on the hospitals that they're choosing. And there's a lot more, for lack of a better term, almost clause in the deals to make sure that they're going to get th their investment is going to be worth it, right? They're going to get that return. Because I think historically, 
you know, two years ago when the market was really crazy, uh, I think a lot of these buyers were just buying hospitals to buy them and they were overpaying and they weren't putting the, the right, you know, clause into these deal structures where, you know, they were just giving these sellers all the cash up front and then they were like, all right, great six months later, see ya. And now you have a, now you have a hospital with no doctors that you overpaid for. That's not making any money. So, you know, I think a lot of them learned that the hard way. And I think now more than ever, these deals are becoming more structured to make sure that there's, there's things in place to keep these sellers on for a little bit longer. And I, and and obviously it varies, you know, depending on the situation, are they a producing doctor in the practice? Are they, you know, are they passive owners, you know, that aren't producing in that case, it could be a little bit different, but for the most part, you know, the less doctors, the less associates you have. And if you're a high producing, if you're a high producing owner, that's a doctor producing in in that practice, chances are you're going to have, you're going to have to be there for, I'd say at this point, I mean, if you're like maybe a two doctor, three doctor practice, they're going to want you there for at least two to three years. Um, if you want that highest offer. And again, to your point, not to take that haircut because, um, you know, that's just the, the environment for hiring doctors is, is tough right now. And, you know, a lot of these corporate groups know that and, you know, they're just trying to protect themselves. So I think that's something that you have to account for. And then as well as, you know, a lot of people who come to me and they're, they're ready to sell now, this is the first valuation that they're getting too. So they're getting a valuation and, and then they're, you know, going to put their hospital on the market. And, you know, there's some things that might come up in that valuation that maybe that your practice truly isn't ready to hit the market yet. You know, you might have another year that you have to adjust some things to make sure that you're getting the most value for your practice, you know, whether it's maybe, you know, cost of goods usually isn't that big of a deal, but maybe your labor, you know, percentage of revenue is super, super high. And that's something we want to get down so you can get a better price for your practice. You know, things like that are all, are all things to consider. So, you know, timing is definitely going to be critical. And I think, the sooner you can start planning and at least get an idea of what that's going to look like for you based on your current situation. So you can have a really accurate timeline is going to be the most important thing. And I, and to your point, I don't think a lot of people realize that. So I couldn't agree with you more on that. Yeah. I think those are all, all great points. I mean, I, I I spoke to a financial advisor in the space one time who said that, you know, you should really start planning for your sale uh, on the day that you purchase your hospital or start up your hospital, uh, you <laughs> know, that's, that. uh, that, that's kind of the ideal situation. And obviously that's not necessarily re- realistic for, for most folks or, or something that a, a lot of people are, are doing. Uh, but the further out you're able to plan, um, you know, there's some legal specific issues we can talk about as well, but just as a general matter, the further you're able to plan out, the the more flexibility you're going to have and the the better the ability you're going to you know be able to maximize the value of this you know very critical asset that that you you own. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I guess, 
we'll talk a little bit about because obviously there's going to be a lot of other there's going to be a lot of other people involved in this process, right? So you have your team, but then there's different third parties. Like, you know, if you, let's say you rent your property, like your landlord, stuff like that. Can you speak a little bit to how these third parties play a role in the process and, you know, how, how much or how little should they be involved and certain things to keep in mind with that as well? Because I know that comes up, that's usually a piece of the, the process too, that, is not commonly talked about. Yeah, for, for sure. The, 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 the rule of thumb is that where, wherever possible, you want to avoid giving any third parties a, a seat at the negotiation table when, whenever you're ready to sell. And obviously there's not necessarily a, a physical negotiation table, uh, but you don't want to give them any say in, in your ability to, to sell your hospital, if at all possible. Uh, the, you know, you you mentioned a few uh, landlords for real estate. You know, oftentimes there are other long term third or long term third party contracts that hospital owners can enter into with with lab providers, uh, with suppliers, with marketing companies. Uh, anytime you enter into any arrangement where you're subject to a contract that requires you to do things for a certain period of time. And that period of time is going to extend beyond the date that you are going to sell or that you want to sell. You're now giving these folks a seat at the table. Uh, and what we mean by that is if you sign a – let me be clear. There, there are a lot of advantages to signing some of these contracts, right? If you sign a, a lab contract that that gives you – you know, guaranteed rebates so long as you hit certain minimum thresholds and you're going to easily surpass those minimums, then it makes sense to, to benefit from the rebates that you're going to get or to, you know, get a free piece piece of equipment that's going to be paid off with, with points that you get from one of these lab companies. Um, the issue comes up, though, where you have a buyer who no longer wants to use that company or use that service and you have another two years left on the agreement that you've signed. Mm -hmm. And that agreement may say, you can terminate early, but if you terminate early, you have to pay us back all the rebates we've given you for the last three years. And that would be a, you know, a huge number. Or you have to pay off the remainder of this equipment that otherwise would have been paid off uh, with points that you were earning by, by purchasing yep. certain tests with us. Um, and so... Again, you just have to kind of weigh the, the benefits, and, and this goes back to, to the planning aspect for sure, where you have to try to plan out as far in advance when you sign one of those long-term contracts that you understand how it might impact your, your ability um, to sell. And then at a even more basic level, let's just say the buyer has agreed that they'll take on this obligation, you need to make sure that the, the documents actually provide and you actually go through, jump through the hoops that are necessary with this third party to assign the obligation to the buyer to ensure that you're not going to remain on the hook uh, for those obligations moving forward. The, you know, the, the lab one is, is one that comes up in, in many, many deals, just given how common those types of arrangements are at, at hospitals. Mm -hmm. uh, the lease that you mentioned is is the other, you know, where a seller does not own the real estate. They, they lease it from, from a third party. And 
whenever it comes time to sell, the real estate needs to be included in the sale of the hospital or else your hospital is, is you know, pretty much worthless at that point. And so if right. you've agreed to this onerous lease with a landlord and that lease doesn't give you any ability to assign it or transfer it to a buyer and you're dealing with, you know, oftentimes landlords will be cooperative and they'll, you know, assist you with the transfer. But if you're dealing with um, an unreasonable landlord or, or a landlord that has decided they're going to try to take advantage of the situation, uh, you could be in a tough place where you're you're not able to assign the lease to the buyer and that will jeopardize your deal. Um I think the, the kind of third example that, that I always like to give is, is with your employees as well. Um, generally, when you sell your hospital, uh, the buyer is not going to have any legal obligation to hire those folks that, that you employed. But mm -hmm. generally, they're going to require that they have the ability to hire those folks because they need them to operate the hospital. And they're going to want to hire those folks at you know, similar terms to what you were offering them because they don't want the employees to be unhappy after the sale, right? You can't really come in and, and cut everybody's salaries in half and expect them to want to continue to work for you after you acquire the hospital. Right. And so we, we see situations where sellers will make certain promises to employees. You know, they'll say, hey, next year we're going to elevate you. You're going to become our office manager and I'm going to increase your salary, you know, by $40,000. And they do that because as we all know, the job, you know, the f finding staff is maybe one of the most difficult things for hospital owners today and, and retaining them. And so they do that as a way to incentivize and retain these folks. But then when the buyer comes on and realizes that this promise has been made to an employee and the buyer doesn't want to honor it, we've now got this situation that, that needs to be addressed. You've given the employee right. a seat at right. the table. And so again, it's not always avoidable, but where it is, it's always advisable to, to avoid giving any third parties any say in, in your sale transaction. Right, right. And two pieces to add. I know the the lab contract, to your point, is a huge thing that comes up so, so often. In fact, um, I can think of one deal in particular that she had signed an agreement and then decided that she wanted to sell and ended up having to pay it was anywhere, I think it was between like twenty to $15,000 at the end because she had to pay off the equipment because, you know, that's not going to be assumed in from the buyer because it was from the point system, kind of like how you alluded to. So it happens all the time. And I have a lot of clients who ask me that a lot, you know, like, hey, I, I'm, my contract's almost up. You know, there's a lot of really good benefits. You know, it's going to give me really good pricing. Is this something that I should sign up for? And my answer is usually no. Um, I, I like to take a look at the agreement and really look at the fine print to see what that entails and if it's something that, but that that a buyer may assume. But truthfully, it's you don't really know. So I think it's always safe to just be better to just not do it. And even if it's going to give you significant savings, again, that's kind of going to go into your cost of goods sold category, and that's usually an easier adjustment that we could make in your financials because again if, if you're coming if you're a client let's say you you know you're yeah you're you have a lot of revenue tied up in your lab you know your lab stuff 
because you don't have special pricing. But as soon as you're acquired and that buyer has, you know, a contract with Antec or IDEX, or IDEX, you know, one of those corporate contracts, you know, they have more buying power. So you're going to be able to get looped right in there, you know, once the sale happens and get that pricing relatively quickly. So that's going to be a quick change that they're going to be able to make. So it's kind of one of those things that, you know, as we look at your financials, we have to assess to see if it's worth getting into something like that. But, you know, for the most part, you know, I always advise them to to try to to try to hold off for as long as they can. Um, and then to your point about the employees, too, I think another important thing to bring up, which is kind of to your point, a little bit unavoidable, especially in the vet space, is the associate doctors, right? Because they're a huge part of the deal. Um, and they can easily, they, unfortunately, most times they do have the power to make or break a deal because, you know, if you don't have that many associates and if you're a three doctor practice and two of your associates decide to leave, uh, you know, during the deal process that there's a good chance that's probably going to kill the deal or change it significantly. Um, so, you know, these are all things that you have to talk about with, you know, I guess more on my side and you, you'd be involved as well, but, um, you know, just making sure that we're talking about, you know, sign on bonuses for associates, including that in as part of the deal and talking about what that should look like, because, you know, most times you're going to be as the seller, they're going to be responsible for paying that out. Right. So it comes in as part of part of the deal structure, like they have money allocated that's going to come out of the, the purchase price to go to those doctors is usually how we structure it. And it usually makes it a lot more appetizing, I'd say, for for buyers because it just makes them feel a little bit more confident that those associates are going to stay on. So um, unfortunately, you know, we try to not give them a seat at the table. And I totally agree, you know, giving raises and things like that. Like we definitely don't want to do anything like that. But the, the sign-on bonus piece for associate doctors, I think, can be a little bit different, but that's something that, you know, they definitely need to talk to their advisor about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the, the last piece that you mentioned with associates, unfortunately, for, for any uh, multi-doctor hospital uh, be, becomes a, a, a potential issue uh, because, again, any buyer is, is going to want to make sure that they have a commitment from from that doctor, as you said, to kind of stick around after the closing. And so that is, a, you, you're totally right. That is one that is very difficult to, to avoid um, because even if you have a contract in place with, with that doctor, even if you have a non-compete that, you know, limits their ability to go and compete against the hospital, any buyer is going to want to make sure that that, that associate is comfortable and, and willing to stick around for some period of time. Uh, and so that is a, that is one that, that planning doesn't always solve. Um, but certainly one that, that you need to be prepared to, to address in connection with the sale. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then we'll, let's dive in a little bit because I, I get a lot of questions, you know, just about, and well, not necessarily questions, but I've seen this as a huge, huge and very common mistake that happens um, as far as not having a true understanding of what an LOI or also known as a letter of intent truly means. So, you know, I'd love to hear you kind of walk through 
some of the most common mistakes people make at that stage, you know, early on in the process, because obviously that's really like, you know, the starting like, oh, yay, we signed the LOI, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the real start of it all of the whole journey. Um, but, you know, I, I think to kind of chime in and, and talk a little bit about, and we, we, we kind of touched on this already, you know, maximizing your value during that time. I think one of the most common mistakes that I've seen is, you know, a lot of times sellers will sign the LOI and then they take the, their foot off the gas, you know, kind of how you mentioned before. They're like, okay, great. We signed the LOI. Um, you know, if we have doctors call out, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like having to call relief veterinarians and make sure we have coverage. You know, I'm just going to let the hospital do its thing. We sign an LOI. We're good. Right. Um, that is definitely not the case. Um, and, you know, people being like, ah, I don't really, I sign an LOI. I don't really want to work as much. I think I'm going to take a couple of days off and, you know, if we're not making any money those days. It, it's not a big deal. Um, definitely a big mistake. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit more about from, from your end, you know, what an LOI really means and what that means to the sellers and just different things that they need to be aware of in that stage in the game, just from your perspective. Obviously, I'm very familiar with, you know, the general overview of the LOI and the different negotiation points. But, you know, I'd love to hear from the legal side too, just different things that you've seen in your, in, in your past. Yeah, sure. So there are unfortunately a lot of misconceptions uh, amongst, you know, our our clients, people in the, the, the vet med space about what a letter of intent really is and what it should be and whether it should be negotiated. You know, the, the letter of intent, as, as you mentioned, at a very basic level is just kind of an outline of the the high level basic terms of the deal. And, and generally, it's the first document that a seller is provided after the buyer has done some, you know, limited due diligence and review of their their financials and, and kind of gotten a glance at the hospital. Uh, many. And so the, the letter of intent is, is generally non-binding which means once you sign that, either side could walk away from the deal the next day. And, and there's nothing that the other party can do to force you to go forward. And so most clients understand that part. And so when they come to me and they say, well, I already signed a letter of intent, but it's non-binding. So, so don't worry about it. We can change. They told me we can change the terms of the deal later if, if we want to do so. Uh, that is by far the biggest misconception that we see in connections with, with letters of intent. It is true that generally the, the LOI is non-binding and so you could walk away. Uh, however, mm. once you sign the LOI and it contains terms about the purchase price, it contains terms about your post-closing employment obligations. Uh, generally it's going to outline, you know, the terms of the lease if you own the real estate and, and, and what all those things are going to look like. If you agree to things in the letter of intent, sure, you can walk away, uh, but it's going to be very, very difficult to renegotiate those those items down down the road. Uh, once you mm-hmm. sign the LOI, the one piece of that LOI that is binding uh, is there's going to be what's known as an exclusivity or a no-shop clause in that LOI. And what that's going to say is you're not you're not required to go forward with us but you are required to stop talking to all other potential buyers 
for 60 to 90 to 120 days. And so you basically have to take the hospital off the market. And that is a binding obligation that you're required to comply with as a seller. And so now that they've, and it's very customary. So it's something that as a buyer, it's reasonable for them to expect you to do so, so that they can continue on with negotiations without concern that you're going to pull the deal and go with a, a better offer. But as a seller, once you've agreed to that, you've now given up quite a bit of leverage because the buyer knows that you can't be negotiating with other buyers. And so you could wait out that period mm. of time. You could wait four months and then go back to the starting point and start negotiating with other buyers. Uh, but generally, that's not what you're going to want to do. And so laying out the, the, the LOI does not need to contain every single term of the deal. There, there's no way that it could. There's no way that a, a buyer would agree to negotiating the letter of intent at that level. But it should have all of the basic terms, all the caveats, if there's any type of you know, joint venture or equity component where you're not going to be paid out in full at closing, which, Kayla, as you know, is becoming more and more common. In deals, mm -hmm. uh, for the reasons you mentioned before, to kind of protect and make sure the seller sticks around for a period of time, um, but you have to negotiate all those things at the at the start because once you agree to something, and you may not even realize you're agreeing to it because you haven't spoken with an advisor, you're going to be. I'm not saying you can't renegotiate it, but it is a very much an uphill battle to try to negotiate those mm -hmm. things after you sign a letter of intent. Yep. I, I totally agree. And I've had, I've, I've seen it in the past where clients have tried to, or it's something that, you know, it, it's in the LOI and they're like, eh, let's just wait and, you know, try to revert, like, you know, change the, the wording in the APA. And it's like, no, 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 we can't do that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, no, I, I, and to your point of giving up the negotiating power to, and, and the exclusivity, like all of those are really good points that I don't think a lot of people understand or think about. So yeah, no, that's, that's a really, really good point. Yeah. And, and unfortunately I will say that many of our clients come to us after they've signed a letter of intent. Uh, and you know, I don't want it, to, it's, it's happened at that point. So I don't want to beat them over mm. the head with, uh, Hey, you've made this, this mistake. Um, but I have right. to kind of tell them, you know, unfortunately, it's going to be difficult to, to go back on, on, on some of these things. And, you know, we're successful in some cases in saying, hey, the, the seller didn't understand this. This isn't isn't reasonable. We need to change it. And, and you certainly can go down that process, but it's going to get more expensive because you're going to have to pay your advisors to kind of work backwards at that point. Um and it's just generally going to be much, much more difficult to, to achieve the, the goals you otherwise had the leverage to achieve before you signed that, that letter of intent. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are all really good points. Um, and, you know, I think just, just again, it kind of all goes back to having an understanding of what every, of what this, the LOI all entails, what all the, the different verbiage means, legal language, stuff like that. I think all of that's going to be super, super important. 
I mean, really, really important moving forward, especially because a lot of times these, you know, these sellers are going to be on for a little bit of a longer period of time and just understanding what this is going to look like for them. And, you know, it can get really tricky. And, you know, I've been in situations before where, you know, I would say another mistake is that that I've seen made many times is, you know, I, I can advise and try to explain things, but if, if the seller doesn't want to understand and, you know, it doesn't want to be involved in this at all, like, obviously, it's our job to be at the forefront of this, but we need them to be weighed in a little bit as well, right? Like they need to be able to understand this and, and you know, sit down with us and us to be able to talk through exactly what they this means for them because they need to know exactly what to expect moving forward. So, you know, I'd love to see, I'd love to hear what, you know, anything that you can add to that as well for what you've seen in your experience, as well as like, as far as understanding the deal and, and you know, being participating in the whole process from the seller's standpoint. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's another, another great point. Uh, you know, I, I, I once had a client who every time I sent him a, a document, uh, and I would get on the phone to discuss it with him, would, would tell me, yeah, I, I read that document twice. I said, okay, that, that's great. Uh, and then I, you know, reviewed through the process, it became very evident he had, had not even opened the, the document, right? He, he had no idea what, oh, uh, nice. and, you know, that example is, is not at all uncommon. Um, look, I, legal documents are, are super boring. Um, they're, they're, you know, yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, valuations as well. Like they, these things are not, not things that are, you know, are going to, keep you up at night if you start reading them they're 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 good sleep aids for sure um but and so and and it's also important to note that you don't need to i I don't even necessarily need my clients to read every every word of the the legal document right there's going to be things in there that they could read and they they aren't going to understand that's that's going to be my job to to point out those things to them and and to walk through all of the the critical pieces of the agreement but there are certain things that I would have no way of knowing unless the client tells me, right? If the client has for the last 20 years offered uh, wellness plans to their clients and has these plans where clients prepay for services that they receive over a year, and that's something that's been critical to the to, to the, the client base and is something that that we need to ensure that the buyer is going to, to take over that moving forward. So we don't deal with, you know, a bunch of clients knocking on our door after the sale, asking for money back. Uh, I would have, you know, it, it's my job to kind of prompt the client and ask questions that should hopefully make them realize that they need to tell me that information, but there's no way for me to know mm-hmm. that unless the client is participating in that conversation and, and actively, uh, analyzing kind of the information that I'm requesting from them. And so again, I, that's maybe a bad example because in every deal, I, I certainly ask the clients if they have any type of, of discount or wellness plans or things like that, because I know that's a, a common item that sellers wouldn't, you know, think to, to tell me. Um, but I think it's just an example of how you can have the best advisors in the world if you're not going to to participate in the transaction and, and kind of take advantage of the knowledge and the advice that they can give you, then you're, you're, 
you're going to be better off than someone who doesn't have good advisors, but you're not going to, to be in the same place as someone who's actively participating in, in the transaction. All right. No, absolutely. We need them to weigh in a little bit. It's our, I mean, the, the language in the legal docs could be super confusing. I, you know, I, I get that, but um, you know, I think it's important that at least you try to understand and, you know, want to understand what that means for you, you know, whether it's, you know, us at least pointing out the main points, but you know, they, they have to have a conversation with us and they have to be open with their communication and, you know, ask questions and answer our questions. And, um, you know, the more, the more transparent I think we can be together, you know, the better. So it, it, I totally agree. It's important. They need to be involved at least in some, in some aspect, right? <laughs> Cause this is still, it's still their livelihood. It's still their, their business. It's still their deal. So, um, even if they might not understand it at first, it's important that they ask, ask the questions. And, you know, and I do think that there is also, you know, caveat to that. There's focusing on the wrong things. I think that happens a lot too, right? So I, you know, I, I've seen there be situations where the seller gets hung up on certain things. And, you know, I think that's part of our job too. And going back to, you know, kind of what we talked about in the beginning, you know, knowing what we can and cannot negotiate. So, you know, having the experience that we have in working so many deals, you know, we know that there's going to be things that, um, that buyers, you know, are going to be, you know, more likely to budge on, less likely to budge on, like different things that are going to be worth our time or worth potentially killing a deal over. And I do think that there's times where sellers can get very hung up and hyper-focus on the wrong things. So, you know, I'd love to to hear your side of what you've experienced with that in in that area as well. Yeah, that that that's very very common. It, it's and it's again understandable how how could you know what you should and should not be focusing on uh if you've never been through this process before. So, this this all goes back to our you know how how we started this conversation, which is have good advisors who can can tell you what you should and should not focus on. If if you are going to retire immediately after your sale, and you've got a hospital in in Vermont, and you're going to move to to Florida to spend your retirement, and you have you know no no intent to ever move back to to Vermont and, and practice again, let's not worry about the non compete that says you can't practice within. <laughs> 20 miles <laughs> of the hospital. It's not going to be an issue. Uh, and, right. you know, some clients will use kind of what what we sometimes uh, in our firm refer to as the, the dreaded P word, which is principle, right? I don't want to agree to this out of principle. I don't really care about it, but I don't think it's right. Well, okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. But are you willing to, <laughs> you know, are you willing to kill this deal over principle? Uh, are you willing to you know, possibly give up something else that you actually care about because you want to pursue this, this item that doesn't matter on principle, that that's a very risky thing to do. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really where oftentimes our, our role, we spend a lot of time, and as I'm sure you do as well, Kayla, on, on those types of things, which is just telling the client what, what should matter, what shouldn't matter. Um, and obviously, there are personal aspects to that as to what should or should not matter, especially with things like a non-compete and kind of what your, your goals are moving forward. But if you're going to sell your hospital, 
you're going to have to expect that nearly every buyer, and if that buyer is getting financing, their lender is going to require that you sign some type of non-compete. And so, you know, for you to just jump up and down and say, there's no way I'll ever do that. Okay. But there's probably no way you're going to be able to sell your hospital then. Um, And so having those frank conversations are not always the, 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 the funnest conversations to have, but uh, they're very important. And, and I think a good advisor can kind of point those things out for, for a client. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I also think there's a side of that too, where clients can become too invested in a potential deal, right? So, you know, again, this could be as early as, you know, kind of what I mentioned before when signing the, the, the letter of intent, you know, all of a sudden they, they start, you know, just doing these things that are a little bit too premature, you know, making plans, telling certain people, you know, all of, I think the, the timing of everything is, is super critical, you know, when, when to tell your staff, you know, and that's another topic in and of itself, um, you know, and just, there's different things that you just need to make sure that the timing is right for. And I do feel that there are some situations where, you know, they, they're, they're focusing on the wrong things and then they're too invested in a potential deal and they get too hung up, hung up on it. And, you know, where all of a sudden they're losing all their, their leverage. Right. So, you know, I'd love to, to hear some feedback on that, on Mm -hmm. that common mistake in my opinion as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, that one is tough. Uh, because you, you know, negotiating a transaction again, and some of this can be avoided by making sure you address a lot of these things up front in the letter of intent, as we, we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, so that you're not dealing with them towards the end of the transaction. Uh, but it, it, it's very difficult not to become fully invested in a deal and kind of picture what your life is going to look like in two months after this deal closes and, and kind of start making life plans and decisions based on, on that assumption that in, in two or three months, this process will be over. You will have sold your hospital. You will have hopefully uh, received, you know, a good sum of money that you were expecting and and you're going to move on with the next stage of your career and your life. Um, And Mm -hmm. so very, very difficult. I mean, I just purchased at at a very smaller level, just purchased a house uh, two years ago. And, you know, you go through that process and you fall in love with a, with a house and and you want to buy it. And, you know, you get to the point where there's another bidder At, at some point you have to say, you know what, this is the line as to what I'm willing to agree to, no matter how much I love the situation or I, I love, um, you know, kind of, or, or I've fallen in love with my, my expectations as to what's going to be. And so, um, again, I don't have the perfect answer for this one. Uh, it, it's, it's one that I think can at least be minimized as, by, by the planning aspect we've talked about, by getting as much out there as possible in the early stage of the process. So, you know, if there's going to be an issue or not with the buyer, um, unfortunately things do come up, uh, as you progress with the transaction. And, and in some cases they may come up, you know, just a few days before you're, you're scheduled to sell your hospital and the buyer is going to come to you and, and potentially ask for some type of concession in order for them to continue to go forward with the deal. Uh, and so, Never an easy situation. Uh, I think there's a, a, a huge balancing act there uh, where if it's something reasonable and there truly is an issue, you probably should 
strongly consider whether you need to make some concession to, to get the deal done, especially if it's going to be an issue that's going to impact your ability to sell to other buyers in, in the future. If it's a, an issue now and it's going to be an issue for everyone, well, you might as well address it now. Um, the flip side as to what you were alluding to, Kayla, though, is you don't want to get so invested in the deal that the buyer kind of knows it. And so you don't want mm-hmm. to, ideally, you you know, in most cases, you don't want to necessarily tell your staff three months in advance that you're looking to sell. Because once you tell them, it's going to be very difficult for you to to pull back and, and not sell. Uh, you don't mm-hmm. want to you know, fail to renew your lease with your landlord because you expect to sell and, or, or you know, take any other actions that, that could uh, put you in a position where you have to sell at that point. Um, right. Again, very, very difficult to do, uh, but hopefully something that if you at least consider from, from the outset, you can try to avoid it as much as possible finding yourself in, in that situation where you have no choice but to go forward with the deal. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great points there. Well, this is all really great information we covered today, Justin. Thank you so, so much. Uh, I think these are some really, really important points. And I hope that anyone listening who is about to start this journey, you know, takes all these to heart and hopefully they will make the process. Well, I know they will make the process much easier if, if they listen to all this advice. So thank you so, so much. Um, do you have any, I guess to just wrap it up, do you have any parting, parting thoughts or any, I guess, main, main points or, you know, most important things to consider when you're getting ready to sell any, anything you want to add at the end of this for our listeners to know? Yeah. Well, well, thanks for, for having me, Kayla. Uh, you know, I guess, not necessarily legal advice, but I will just say that uh, generally, as we've mentioned a few times, you know, selling your hospital, especially if, if you haven't been through this process before, is certainly uh, an overwhelming one, right? That's uh, something that can be very difficult. There's a lot of emotions that, that come into play as to whether or not you're you're ready to sell, uh, whether you're making the right decision, whether you've picked the right buyer, you know, should you attempt to, to get better terms. Uh, and just generally, you know, uh, being you know, somewhat apprehensive about the, the process as, as you work through it, for, for especially, again, for someone who's never been through this process before. And so hopefully, you know, some of the advice we've given here uh, will just make you feel a, a bit more comfortable, but it's okay not to feel comfortable through, through the process. Uh, you know, I, I have these conversations with clients all the time. Uh, you know, Kayla, you and, and myself and other advisors that we work with in the space understand all of these things are going on and this isn't an easy process for these folks. Uh, and again, all of that is okay. Um, and so I think by, by having some good advisors on your team that can, can walk you through what should be concerning, what shouldn't be concerning, and just allowing yourself to, to understand that it's okay to, to have all of those feelings and concerns and, and uh, you know, apprehension throughout the process. Um, again, not, not really legal advice, and maybe I'm getting a little too far askew out of my expertise here, but I, I think it's important to, 
to understand all of those things as you work through this process. I think that's a really important point because this is a very emotional process. And I don't think a lot of people think about that, you know, when I think when they're initially thinking about it, you know, it's very black and white. It's, it's, it's a deal. It's a business decision, but in the end, it's also a very emotional decision, right? This is people's livelihoods that we're talking about. And, you know, it's something that they've built and it's also part of their legacy and it's, it's, it's also very emotional. So I think that's a really good point. And it's definitely not an, an aspect that should be looked, looked over because it's an important point on all of this. So, um, so I can't thank you enough, Justin, for, for coming on today. This was all really, really great, really, really great points that we discussed. Um, I guess, how can our listeners get, um, you know, obviously when I post this, you know, feel free to reach out to me, you know, I have all your contact info, but, um, can you just leave some information, you know, just so our listeners know how to get in contact with you if they'd like to hire you, which they should, if they're thinking about this process, but, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah. So the best way is, uh, probably email and I can give you my email so you can, or you have it, but you can include it. It's, uh, in the, the podcast information, but it's Justin, my first name, at obermanlaw.com. Uh, you can also find me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, not always great about promptly responding to LinkedIn messages, but uh, generally I do see those as well. Um, and, you know, once it, I, I'm always happy to kind of have initial conversations with folks, even if they're not necessarily to the point where they're ready or, or even if they don't know if they should be ready to speak with an attorney. Um, and so always happy to connect with folks in, in, in the space and let them know whether or not, you know, their, their situation is one that, that we can assist with. Um, but yeah, I just, I'll say, Kayla, thanks again for, for having me on. It's, uh, it's been a, a fun conversation and, uh, hopefully we got some, some good information out there. Awesome. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you everyone for listening today. Um, you know, if you have any questions about this podcast, please feel to reach, reach out to either one of us. Um, but I hope that you enjoyed the session and I hope that we were able to answer some questions for you. So thanks again, Justin, and we'll be back again soon.